Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is the council. I'm looking at a very full Zoom chat today, but let's start with my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. You stole my line. I'm supposed to be like, yeah, right, talk some fantasy with my friends, Charles, when you do the, it just, oh, that's plural, because... It's just hard not to acknowledge that we have this all-star cast in front of us as part of our comeback week. Uh, We have the privilege and the honor to welcome a variety of people today. I will start first, I'll suppose, with uh, we have fiction fans here. Sarah, unfortunately, couldn't make it, but that's okay because Lily is here with us today. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'll just have to talk twice as much as usual to make up for her. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, hello, Sarah. We, we wish you could be here, but you know, there's always next time. And uh, then we also have from our pod, we have Hannah and Laura. Welcome, Thanks. Hannah. Welcome, Laura, to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. The pleasure is out. All ours, guys, if you like fantasy books or literature in general, you have to check out Fiction Fans Pod and Our Pod. I think it's only polite, Dylan, if we give each of them a chance to just kind of pitch their shows a little bit before we get started, just so everyone knows. If you haven't been listening to them multiple times, they've all come on to collaborate with us and vice versa. We'll just give them a second. Uh, Lily, why don't we start with you? But just give us a little background about fiction fans. Uh, Well, fiction fans, as the name might suggest, is a podcast where we are fans of books. Mm. Um, It's mostly Sarah and I arguing about things. Sometimes we agree and then manage to argue about it anyway. Um, I think probably one of the funnest things we've been doing lately, though, is a collab with our pod. We started doing a little nostalgia series where we read books from our childhood and are aghast at them mostly (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome and then so hannah and laura i'll let you two duke it out on who who talks when (laughs) go ahead hannah (laughs) i thought it would be me uh laura and i are two best friends and our pod or on wednesdays we read is a podcast where we do a deep dive into a new book series, one book at a time. Right now we're blazing through the Poppy War and we are covering RF Kuang's The Poppy Wars. Um, And we talk about that and other books or TV shows we're reading or watching. So it's a mishmash of things. Huge fans of both shows, huge fans of The Poppy War, huge fan of nostalgia, huge fan of (laughs) lifelong friendships as well. So Guys, you, you can't go wrong. It should be noted that Charles was in a band called Nostalgia in high school. So <laughs> he's a gigantic fan. And I was one of the only people who showed up to their gigs. So if anything, I'm a huge fan of Nostalgia. And Charles is a member of Nostalgia. We, we played cover songs for, you know, empty cafes. <laughs> and I went to one at a library. Yeah. They used to give us volunteer hour credits to play for free at the library. So we're like, okay. <laughs> we what type volunteer. of cover songs were you playing? Mostly classic rock, a couple like more contemporary songs, but you know, a lot it's of like the bon Beatles. Some, yeah, we never played Bon Jovi, but. Oh. Um, you should hear Charles sing Walk This Way by Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. Did I get the wrong song? You 
Right? Let's you got the wrong song, but you were close <laughs> enough. You got the band right. But uh, I'm not here today to talk about any of that ancient history. Just say what song it is first. It's Sweet Emotion. <laughs> sweet Emotion. Got but, um, All right, God. No. We have the whole panel here, Dylan. We can't waste time with your antics because we have what is deceptively a shorter book, but there is a lot to get into. I am referring to our book of discussion today, Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Now, this is one of those ones that Dylan championed, I think, and you had read it before. It had gotten all kinds of attention and accolades, right, Dylan? Yeah, Woman's Prize for Fiction, as well as an Audi Award, which is for the audiobook. So I've, I've now read the physical and listened to the audio, and I can highly recommend both. Fantastic. And yeah, like I said, you know, it's it's shorter than what we typically are used to in the fantasy genre. It's not a thousand page tome. It, it's under 300 pages, I believe. And um, that doesn't stop it from being just jam packed with really interesting what Dylan and I like to call capital L literature uh, moments. So Dylan, why don't you uh, kick off the discussion here? You've read it twice now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Well, before we get into it, I want to make sure to give a spoiler warning because we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be going deep dive into Piranesi. So if you haven't had the chance to pick it up yet, go pick it up. And uh, otherwise, yeah, you want to turn this down in your headphones so you don't get any spoilers. But yeah, the book, it's uh, like Charles said, it, uh, it's a relatively brief book. My paperback's uh, less than 250 pages over here. Uh, it basically throws you into this world where you're following this character named Piranesi who believes himself to be one of only two people in the entire world. His world being just a giant labyrinth which is like, he calls it the house. He has reverence for it. Like it's some uh, sort of like religious uh, experience for him to be there. And there's, it's clearly not a normal labyrinth because not only are the statues everywhere, but there's also just a tide and there's birds and there's uh, fish that he can actually keep himself fed with. And he's just kind of scavenging and living there. He doesn't seem particularly unhappy about it at the start of the book. That, that's yeah, that's where we start with it. Yes, well said. And it's meant to be noted that this book is told mostly through his his mm. journal entries, right? You read it as kind of a series of journal entries. And one of the things I one of the things I wanted to hear from the council about really is just like their experience reading this book and how kind of this presentation as a series of journals through this character of Piranesi kind of stuck with you. If there's any moments you wanted to, to highlight and um, any interesting things about the character that stuck out to you, I guess, you know, I'll keep going this round. I'll start with Lily and we'll hear from everybody. Well, I have a real answer and I have a goofy answer. <laughs> okay. The real answer <laughs> is that I absolutely loved it unreliable narrators are just particularly enjoyable for me. And as we find out in the novel, being in this place starts to erode people's memories and senses of self. And we have joined Piranesi after he's lived there for, I think, a decade or no, six years. 
Um, so he's really lost a lot of himself. And so we're reading these journal entries for someone who knows almost nothing except the current moment. And then we start getting earlier journal entries and it's just a really cool uh, experience to follow through this story in that way. The goofy answer is that he also includes excerpts from other published works and the mental image of this pre-labyrinth guy just sitting there and copying pages and pages of a printed book into his own journal is very silly. <laughs> <laughs> I will say too, Willie, we always get you on for, you famously are not a fan of first person, if I'm remembering correctly, first person narrative. However, we usually get you on, we had you on for Murderbot as well, when there's an actual reason why it's being like, I guess both Murderbot diaries and this are written like journal style. So yeah, um, usually sounds like my question it didn't bother is, you as much. Usually my question is, who are you talking to? Uh, yeah. which is addressed pretty early on in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated that greatly. <laughs> All right, Hannah and Laura, duke it out. Who speaks first? Laura, do you want to go first? <laughs> sure, I'll go first. So I guess when I started the book, I I found it a little bit slower, the journal entries. And Hannah had talked it up because she had finished it before me. And She's like, this book is so good. It's one of my new favorites. And so that had me interested in it. And I was really, really looking to try and find clues because I'm like, okay, she said there's an unreliable narrator. Something's definitely going on here. But so far, this seems really boring. This is just someone talking about like, oh, I have to make it over into this side to catch fish. And then I have to make it to the South Northwest Hall for this. And I was, it took me a while to get into it. But then once you start getting a little bit farther, I think it's like around 25% of the way in then it really starts to pick up and mess with your mind, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the experience of being in his head where he's clearly ridiculously confused about what's going on, it does kind of mm -hmm. mess with your mind because you're also just trying, like you have a little bit more info than him about certain things. Like you'll hear, he'll be like, Manchester, like that's a complete nonsense word. Like yeah. doesn't actually apply anything in the real world. So at least to get these moments where it's like, oh, at least I know what Manchester is. So you're a little ahead of, of the game with Piranesi, but everything's also filtered through his now warped perspective. So it's it's so hard to follow. <laughs> um, right. But that's part of the charm is you're kind of piecing it together with him along the way. Uh, yeah. I, no, I agree. I really enjoyed this book. I did hype it up to Laura after starting reading it. Like this brand of book is very much my style. It reminded me a lot of like Jeff Vandermeer's science fiction novels, um, which is one of my favorite authors. So I was definitely here for the unreliable narrator and just how humorous he is in his lack of knowledge. Cause like, it's just watching someone be incredibly happy, even though, you know, something like dark is under the surface <laughs> and yeah. it's interesting getting that juxtaposition. And I mean, he even notes that his name isn't uh Piranesi, but like, that's all he knows and that's what he accepts. So it's mm. watching someone be an unreliable narrator in a weird world where he just accepts it full force. And it's like other things coming in that make him start questioning but it's like seeing him at a moment where we haven't seen the past six years, but we understand how he got to here. So I really enjoyed this book. I would like to yeah. say 
we're calling him an unreliable narrator, but one of the characteristics that he has is that he's actually extremely accurate with his recordings. True. So yeah. it, it's it's less that his narration is unreliable and more that he has no idea what's going right. on. <laughs> and so That's, his interpretation yeah. of events is just absolutely uh, off the wall. Yeah, that's well said, Lily. I agree completely. It's almost like a twist on the unreliable narrator. And it's it's one of the things I'm most impressed by Sus uh, Susanna Clark's writing style in this is the fact that, okay, she's created this character, Piranesi, um, but the character is all about scientific reasoning and logic and like trusting in the facts and very intelligent. There's many times in the book where he's meeting people for the first time and they're like, oh, that's an interesting question. Like very like astute observation and stuff like that. But he's also this balance of being so innocent. Memory's been wiped. He's like living in this paradise place where everything is seemingly perfect and, and peaceful. There's no violence. There's no malicious behavior. So he has no experience of what that's like. And so he's just writing all these notes down. He's like, oh, I'm studying the birds. They're nesting in my favorite thing. Like this, that, that. But through context, the plot slowly starts to reveal itself to you, but not to Piranesi because we get the sense that the other is withholding information or that's kind of suspicious that he disappears and comes back and he's only in there two days a week or that um, he knows things that Piranesi does and or maybe there's something in the world like why are there 12 dead bodies here obviously like nothing is is that perfect so to, to me it's the writing style like the character building and then the way we present the narrative too it's a way of through context giving the story without compromising the character of Piranesi who is both innocent and an astute observer at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Well said, Charles. I found the interactions between Piranesi and the other at the beginning to be so frustrating just because of what you said, Charles, because he's one of those people that questions so many things. And then he was not questioning the other enough. I'm like, ask some more questions. How did he have shoes? Why is he able to bring you these things? Why are you asking? <laughs> The actually... other is extremely evasive, though. Yes. Like, uh, he refuses to answer because so he's just this nefarious, horrible person. And, but Piranesi trusts him implicitly because he's like, he's got no comparison point. He's like, well, this is the only other person in the world. So I guess this is what people are like. Right. No, I actually like thought that was a very smart way of like Clark's writing where he just accepts the world as it is. So like there are so many things he should have questions about where he's like, there's just buckets of fried chicken everywhere or like bones of fried chicken. And you're sitting there like, where did the fried chicken come from? But you realize like in his mind, he's made the logical leaps because like of the way the house works and the way memory works. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't want to ask questions because he's hiding that side from himself or he's forgotten that side. So certain things just have to make sense because of his own denial, it almost feels like, or lack of understanding. And so I did think that that was really smart on her part to be like, yeah, he's just not questioning it. Although mm -hmm. I agree with Lily, the writing down in his past life of every single article was incredibly <laughs> funny to me. I thought he had just like clipped it out. And then later he's like, no, I wrote it down word for word. I'm like, no one's doing that. That's so strange. <laughs> <laughs> I it, And Piranesi does eventually throughout the book uh, or later on in the book acknowledge that he is not like this 
cold, stone cold, rational scientist. He's extremely sentimental. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that uh, influences his relationship with the other because the other is his friend. He decided he's his friend. So he treats him like his friend, even if the other is not a very good friend. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love how wholesome Piranesi is. Like mm-hmm. you just, uh, I think in modern fantasy, things have gotten really grim, dark and cynical. And we, we love those characters too. I mean, like we're big fans of Abercrombie and he's like the Lord Grimdark. But at the same time, it's uh, such a fresh <laughs> feeling character to have one who's just, yeah, the most wholesome, unreliable narrator to uh, ever be written. It also reinforces for me, don't trust anyone. Like you, you <laughs> don't be like Piranesi and just yeah. implicitly trust people. Like you can't trust anyone. Laura's theme of the episode is ask questions. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good one. He definitely could ask a few, <laughs> a few more of the other. I do love how he's like, uh, he's like, I can only assume that because the other has less survival skills that the house gifts him with more things like shoes and <laughs> like I'm trying to think what I, it's like gives him notebooks gives him mm-hmm. all this stuff and sleeping like bags. otherwise he'd die <laughs> yes yeah, I remember bags. like halfway in to the book it's like the list of gifts the other has given me and like one oh, year yeah. it was just like uh, yeah a tissue or something <laughs> and like the next year it was like a notebook it's like all year he only he's gave so appreciative. like a piece of trash and he's like documents it and it's like this is my best friend look at all the stuff he's given me and then you're reading it like that's so sad <laughs> like right. he clearly has the means to give you more he and... just forgot on that random tuesday that he met he's like oh crap oh, here's a tissue yeah. <laughs> something like incredibly human about this book even though it's like really slim there's so much humanity packed in the punch because even with the other like he is this nefarious character but he's also kind of an idiot like if you think about (laughs) it where he like has this person who's been here for six years who's like hey I have all this research all these things are important and the other is literally there to learn about the house and he's always like oh you dumb Piranesi you're fine (laughs) like you're just talking you just figure things out Mm -hmm. and that's so strange because like typically in books like this yeah (laughs) like if he did did all this work he would use Piranesi more but he is a bumbling human so he's just not going to yeah the other as a villain is was super fascinating to me and, and I'm glad you brought it up Hannah because to me like even though Piranesi is so far behind in terms of being able to compete with this guy he's still because of his you know analytical mind and his natural curiosity he's able to confuse the other multiple times, catch him in lies multiple times. And the other, just all he can rely upon is the fact that Piranesi is so innocent and has no idea what deception is. And that's the only reason he's able to control him for so long. And then of course, once Piranesi starts to meet other people, he's like, oh, I can conclude that the other's kind of an idiot and needs help and all this other stuff maybe he's not as great as he says he is and even one of the guys is like oh that guy is an idiot he never had an original thought in his life always trying to like you know copy my ideas and he's totally wrong by the way there's no way he can accomplish what he set out to do here it's impossible I proved it years ago and then of course he gets himself killed even though he had a life jacket and a and a and a rowboat (laughs) stop Piranesi from escaping he's so poor (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I it still made me nervous, it, but it was very oh, poor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see how someone so inept just by the nature of being like a not trustworthy person, being someone who's willing to deceive other people, capture them just by having that as his character, he's able to tragically capture Piranesi and and use him for all that time. It's it's a, it's a part of the book that I find super fascinating and goes understated, but you feel it the whole time. And I think I couldn't quite figure out what I was feeling with the other's way of treating Piranesi, but I think part of it comes with like, oh, the only thing this guy has is that he's willing to deceive and do bad things. And that's why he's able to have some semblance of control in this whole thing. Otherwise he has no quality or merits to his personality at all. I found a majority of this book extremely heartbreaking. Yes. <laughs> Just following Piranesi's struggle as he discovers the wider world and goes through all of these revelations about himself and just like who who he is or who he might have been and he still ends up believing or he still describes his previous identity as a different person who's just in like sleeping inside of him and something about yeah. that is so sad mm -hmm. yeah is, it's oh go ahead <laughs> uh, this book is heartbreaking that I actually expected the ending to be darker than it was like yeah. I was expecting him to just forget everything that had just happened to him and remain in the house forever and I was a little shocked that Clark went a different way just with the overall tone of the book it was a little shocking to me that at the end he like ended up exiting and it's still heartbreaking in its own way because he's like I will forever be tied I'm only here for other people and you realize like he's never going to exist merely for himself anymore but I was kind of shocked that it didn't go the darker route. I thought it was very sweet when he hunts down or not hunts down, but goes to find the other guy who had previously been trapped in the labyrinth and shows him uh, how to get back because poor James both Ritter. Of these people, yeah, James, poor James Ritter. <laughs> I love that people. about it too. Yeah. <laughs> how, like when he hears like a moniker, you know, he hears like it expressed as poor James Ritter, then it's always poor James Ritter instead of just James Ritter. As <laughs> I like, go on, Lily. Oh, just that both of these people, after being taken out of the house, not like kind of against their will, right? Piranesi does agree ultimately to leave. But they all they want is to go back. Right. And that's just such an interesting yeah. aspect of it. Neither of them right. wanted to go to the house, but after spending time there, they prefer it to our world. And that's you bring up an interesting conversation that another piece that I was fascinated about, Susanna Clark, you know, the ending, not as tragic as maybe we would be expected to believe after reading you know, some fantastical works of fiction, right? Usually it's impactful, uh, but the ending is rather understated. And I think there's a lot of complexity involved in the setting of the house and then the setting of the real world. And I'm wondering to myself, it's like the house, is it a prison? Is it a sanctuary? It, it, like, what is it? And I think the fact that it's not just like, oh, you escaped, you're out of there now. And now you're back in the real world and you're yourself again. And this is like, you've won, congratulations, or oh, you're trapped there forever, haha, -ha, you're doomed. It's like, people want to go back and people go back and forth. And, you know, James Ritter wants to go back, he wants to stay there. You have the police officer who likes to go there from time to time. Yeah. So what I'd love to do is get everyone's feedback on like how you perceive the setting 
of the house versus the setting of like the real world and if you made any kind of connection to some kind of theme Susanna Clark was trying to 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 make with this idea of, of the house this other world I guess you could say hell is other people (laughs) 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 I mean the house is this almost this utopia for Piranesi who has survival skills and can you know sustain himself there but it's the introduction of other humans that makes it scary and ominous Mm -hmm. and it is Mm -hmm. the lack of other people that the the police officer or 16 as Piranesi calls her Mm -hmm. she uh like that's why it's a sanctuary for her. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, though, because the the loneliness when Piranesi like realizes, oh wow, the first the other was only actually here on the two days a week that he'd visit. And I realized now if uh Raphael or 16 isn't here, I'm literally just by myself in this giant uh, labyrinth which is uh there's it's not even wine to necessarily be around people all the time but just the knowledge of like there's someone else in here i'm not entirely alone like i guess as, as social animals as people we like to at least know that right? yeah i think i was going to go off of that too and say that on the same side like the opposite side of that coin of what lily was saying you've got that sense of community that draws piranesi out even though he's still so connected to the labyrinth, he wants to come out because of that community and because of other people. And to, like Hannah said previously, kind of just be there for other people, even if it's not something that necessarily serves him. I also think there's something to say about like the naturalness of the labyrinth, because like it talks about the birds he sees, the fish, and it's so can give him everything and that's like there's the line the beauty of the house is immeasurable it's kindness infinite and it's all about like Mm. yes he is capable of himself and making sure he survives but there are other beings in the world that maybe aren't human and then he has to take certain steps to make sure he has that ties to humanity by like bringing like respect to the people who were came before him and making sure that they Mm. have dignity after they've like ceased to I do think that there is a certain beauty to Lily, like the hell is other people, but like there is something about the house that I think a lot of people see as like this malicious thing where Piranesi has like spent enough time there to appreciate the wonderness and like the natural beings that exist there. In my mind, oh, sorry, Lily, go ahead, Lily. In my mind, uh, Piranesi and James Ritter retire there together and they just live and enjoy the house and Piranesi fishes to feed them and they just yeah. live happily ever after. And play bridge, you know, yeah. just classic <laughs> retirement activities. It's basically the equivalent of Florida. It's, <laughs> you know, there's tides and the weather, not as humid probably. So uh, good spot. So this is a small knit, but... James Ritter sounds so much like John Ritter and Jason Ritter, the actors, that I could not stop picturing them oh. as James Ritter. <laughs> it's too close. Well, now we know who will play them in the, <laughs> in the movie. And I'll say on the house and the other beings subject that we're circling around, there is something just gorgeous about the idea of the house. And a lot of it is Susanna Clark's writing, which is uh, she's just got away with words. And 
I, I remember I was talking to Hannah about this uh, and there's something about that scene where the albatross comes, like it's always sticks out in my head uh, where, you know, he's used to seeing these smaller birds and it's just like giant albatross and the way that Susanna Clark describes it, it's like, it elicits for me a lot more like awe and wonder than does like reading about dragons or other like really magnificent fantastical creatures in other fantasy books. And I think that's something that's really cool about the house is almost it's so restrained, like what is actually there that when something different or uh, interesting happens, you're like, oh my God, an albatross. (laughs) So I, I thought that was really cool about it. And it goes toward what Suzanne Clark's able to do with such a, um, you know, comparatively small, like compact uh, setting, book length, character list, like all this stuff is so oh, manageable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me, the the thing about the house, as beautifully written as it is, as peaceful, peaceful as it sounds, there's no hunger, there's plenty of food, um, it provides everything you need to like live comfortably. I'm using air quotes for that. But what's fascinating to me about it and then how it ties into the ending is you can't stay there indefinitely. It's kind of like the magic of life that's like the imprint of it as it trickles through, right? That's how this world is created. There's this magic in the world or, or some other force in the world. I forget the exact theory of it in the book, but basically it's kind of like, the magic channels through and this is not where it ends up but it's as it's flowing through and it ends up somewhere else right and part of that means your memories and everything your identity gets kind of washed away with it as well and i think a lot of the characters that have come in contact with the house have had this this conflict within them of like you know life is simpler in the house is more peaceful in the house there's a lot of comfort there but it's almost like you can't escape the world and all of its realities. Like there is this other part of Piranesi that has a family that miss him. He has friends. He's got to get out and get into life and embrace life and all of those things. So when he's outside and he goes back occasionally, to me, that was the most fascinating part about the setting was it seems like a nice place to go on a vacation, but there's also like, something about almost living separate from the world, isolating yourself like that is just not good for you and inevitably could lead to this kind of detachment, this disassociation. And even though there's people that are deceptive or, you know, you have to like you wear clothes and all these other weird things that Piranesi is like struggling with. He's like, I don't want all these things. There's too many things in my life now. I don't like owning stuff. It's like, well, it's, you know, just part of life. and living with both things almost kind of reads like a tragedy, but it is part of living in the world. And I think that's kind of part of the ending that Susanna Clark was going for of like back into life now up here in AC. It's, and all of it's, whether that's a happy ending or a sad one, that's your destiny. So I thought that was kind of almost touching in a way. We also see two very different ways of interacting isn't quite the right word with the house. 
because no one actually chooses to live there. (laughs) The two people who have lived there for a long period of time were both trapped, or at least that we see in the book. And there are are people who are able to go in and out of the house, uh, 16 and the professor, Lawrence, I think, a couple. Right. And so it's such a different experience of this place you know, choosing to spend a little bit of time there just to get away from everything like 16 does or being forced to live there until you lose yourself, which is uh, perhaps not a a good coping mechanism. That's that's well said. And coping is an interesting phrase because Dylan, you had actually done some research behind the scene on Susanna Clark herself, right? And what she was going through as she was writing this book and you kind of feel like yeah I can see that (laughs) that's an author would be feeling that way when writing a book like this right Dylan yeah so it's actually an interesting story about how Piranesi came to be is she actually started working on this before her debut novel that she's famous for I mean it's Jonathan Strange and Mr. I think it's Norrell someone can yeah Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell which came out in 2004 and uh, Suzanne Clark hasn't published anything besides Piranesi since. So Jonathan Strange sold 4 million copies. It got made into a BBC miniseries. So all of this success, and I haven't read Jonathan Strange, but I would imagine um, probably really well written. And it's also a, just a giant behemoth of a book. And then uh, Susanna Clark ended up shortly after publication getting diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And she just uh, really was struggling to write and she'd start to lose all her confidence. And it was only after a while that, and then she apparently got inspired visiting the set of Jonathan Strange when they're making into that miniseries. And then she was like, okay, I got to. I got to get back to writing and I'm going to probably go back to that project I was working on. It must have been like the early aughts, I would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because she's like, it's more manageable. There's not all these characters. There's not, she's a, not hundreds of characters to track or anything like that. And uh, then I think her writing this, it was like a, a triumph, not just because it won all these awards and such an amazing book, but also because it was her way of like getting back into the, the, uh, writing and publishing game and she I think likely used this as a way to cope with what she's dealing with and you probably see some of that in uh, kind of what Lily was getting at with the house as a as a coping mechanism it's like how you shouldn't eat ice cream for every meal <laughs> wait <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something Uh, like Charles mentioned, this is like the imprint of life passing through. mm -hmm. And I think there is something to be said with that, along with the whole, like the people who are trapped there. If you look at like, everyone talks about a life of solitude and being alone. And like, that's kind of like a dream for many people, quote unquote, but then like people have shown that solitary confinement and removal from like any interaction with people is so detrimental to your mental health. And like, 
it's just an extra burden of stress. So I do think that there is that thing of like, there is, you need the connection of other people, even if it is exhausting in your mind. So that's interesting with what she was going through. Right. This idea of like putting yourself back out there, like Susanna herself personally had to put herself back out there to start writing again. And then you have Piranesi, who's the police officer's like, do you want to come out with me? And Piranesi's like, I don't know. I don't think so. I really like it here. Like, I don't know, like, those people are not my family, like, very reluctant to do anything. And so I think this idea of, like, coaxing yourself out of it and kind of getting back into your life is something that can feel almost alienating and daunting at times, but it's, you know, necessary as part of moving on, whether it's from, like, moving on and creatively or moving on from being held captive in a place to the point where your memory was wiped like you have to like come back out of it and I think part of the one of the themes that I think is prevalent here is like how do you how do you go back into the world like he's meeting up friends in cafes at the end of this book it's like a totally wild thing when you consider what he was doing for years before that of just like fishing by himself and and spending whole days charting a labyrinth that no one lives in. So it's, it's a fascinating parallel there. I also thought it was interesting how Piranesi at the end of the book is a sort of a third version of himself. He's not hmm. Matthew, who was the original man who got trapped in the labyrinth. And, but he's also not the Piranesi of the labyrinth. He talks a little bit about how, uh, when when he lived in the labyrinth, he took a lot of care in his appearance in the way he could. <laughs> but now that he's back, uh, although Matthew and Piranesi both cared quite a bit about their appearance, he just can't bring himself to anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, he's sort of evolved into this, not not a combination of his two previous selves, right? He's a, he's a new, his own new person. Yeah, I think you're tapping into something something there because it's he, he always was describing this Matthew guys oh it's this voice in my head that's Matthew and he's telling me look go see my family or something like that and and so it's like I'm doing this for him but he's not me kind of a thing yeah there's that sense of obligation he has where he's like even he even says he's going to go back to trying to write a book on armed sales because that's what Matthew is up to. So it's it's interesting. And by the way, that would probably be a really interesting read. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Like he'd probably because he can't write it the way that Matthew Rose Sorensen was going to write it as this like detached academic piece on things he's gonna write it as like when I spent time in the labyrinth in the house like yeah uh, I learned this and actually ran into art sales in the house it's like <laughs> yeah. so it's it's funny that he does turn into this third person who kind of has the other two inside him and it, it does it does speak to that whole like going back into society because he can't be Matthew Rose anymore. And he like Piranesi doesn't have a place in the new world that he's in. So he's got to get back into the world. And then part of that is like, I guess I'm going to have like a real job. I'm going to go be an author. So, and I wonder uh, from the, from the panel here, how much you guys think uh, kind of this 
trauma element plays into this development for Piranesi because it's never explicitly said that, oh, you, you're doing this because you're coping with trauma or that you feel like you've been traumatized once you realize that the other was betraying you this whole time. It's never, ever said. So I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts, this idea of like, he was kidnapped against his will and held captive. Like that's never anything that anyone explicitly says to that extent even the police officer almost has this feeling of tragedy he's like do you want to come out only if you want to like this is you now I understand that like very understanding of the whole situation but no one's like oh my god Piranesi you've been trapped this whole time that's so horrible I'm so sorry that happened to you it's like no but I was wondering you know to, to what extent do you think that that idea like is Piranesi traumatized in any way has that affected his character that we this third person that we get at the end I, well, I think we wants. have a parallel <laughs> with James Ritter in that mm -hmm. respect we don't have a lot of conversation about how this experience affected Matthew because it's from Matthew's perspective, right. but we hear a lot about sort of the reactions to James Ritter after he was saved uh, from being quote unquote locked in a room, but I think we all agree that he was in the labyrinth. I don't, do they actually explicitly state it? But Matthew figures it out. Well, yeah. yeah. He <laughs> takes him there and James Ritter is like happy to be back and he wants to stay there. So, I mean, and, even if it's not explicitly stated. And they mentioned the whole thing of like, how was he kept alive this whole time? Just shoved in the wall. like <laughs> Right. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so we, we read, or uh, Piranesi transcribed several articles about how traumatizing that must have been for James Ritter. And so even though we don't actually get any conversation about it for himself, I think you could sort of assume similar conversations might've been happening in that world. Well, so Charles, right before you even brought up trauma, all I could think was like, this book is just showing like a trauma response to being kidnapped and locked somewhere. If you think about it, like, the traumatic thing is to just kind of muddle through and make sure you're surviving. And that's like what Piranesi did. And from the outside looking in, no one knows about the labyrinth in his, like, but they may just say like, oh, he was locked in a room and he created this space to keep him safe in his own head. And that is believable because it does happen to people. And so if you look at it from that way, like it's just someone's like actual trauma that they've gone through. And they've even shown like people who exit prison have to sleep in small enclosed spaces with like strong locks and everything. They can't have wide open spaces because it makes them uncomfortable. So if you think about it from the James Ritter and like Piranesi wanting to go back, it's like they wanted to go back to the safe space where they feel a little bit of comfort. And in that, I think it is very much about the trauma he experienced. And even the whole, like both Piranesi and Matthew loved the look of themselves. It's like, well, he just found out he went through all this trauma and he's been surviving for so long. He doesn't have the energy to do that anymore. And you do become the third person who's like, I've been through all of this. I was one person on one side and now I'm another. How do I exist with all this? I think it's yeah. also interesting too, that Susanna Clark has a chronic illness because you can see a lot of those things in the character of Piranesi and he's not dealing with illness per se, but when you're dealing with a chronic illness, you have symptoms that 
can't be explained. You don't know how to explain them to people. You are experiencing things that don't make sense to other people. And you feel kind of like outside of your community. Like you don't feel the same as other people. And so for those James Ritter and for Piranesi, I'm assuming they both have this situation where they're in the regular world and they're kind of feeling like outsiders because they have this whole experience of the labyrinth. And it's similar to someone with a chronic illness that has this experience within themselves that just others don't really understand and they don't quite feel like they're there. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Laura. And I feel like it kind of shows that experience well when he goes back into the real world and he is, you know, he's going to therapy and they're telling him like, I can't remember what they diagnose him with, but uh, they're, you know, treating him like this is psychosis or something that he's going through or is the trauma uh, response that he, where he made it all up. But we know because of like Raphael and the other, it's like, no, this is a legitimate real place that other people can visit and actually even retrieve him from. And it's, uh, yeah, like he gets, uh, I can't think of a better word than othered, but it's kind of confusing. Yeah, set apart for sure. Where that's the character name. But uh, yeah, he gets kind of, um, uh, you know, told that this is a sickness, um, uh, pathologized would be a good mm-hmm. word for it, where it's like, no, like the parts where I'm telling you I was in a big house and I just went around the labyrinth and there's statues everywhere, like that part's real. And other people are like, no, 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 no. That's not my experience. So. Uh, right. And yeah, that totally mimics probably Susanna Clark's experience with chronic illness where people are like, oh, no, that's not happening. That's not a thing. She's like, no, this is yeah. really what's happening to me. Right. right. And there's also the things that might soothe you that would confuse other people because Piranesi is like, oh, I have to make offerings to the dead. And if I don't, then no one will be there to do it. And it's like people are like that's OK. They're dead. No one cares. Sure. Like come out and have coffee with me in the real world you know it's like that kind of aspect of it I think is interesting as well like the things that kept Piranesi like the obligations that Piranesi felt. So this is something that I found really interesting the juxtaposition of poor James Ritter and Piranesi where uh, so regarding trauma most people in their lives experience at least one event that would qualify as a uh, traumatic event, but it, most people do not develop PTSD. And one of the like theories that they have on why uh, this is the case is based on this, it's like a meaning-making model is what they call it. And uh, like to, to give the short of it, if you can find a way to take your traumatic experience and fit it into your own life narrative in a way that uh, is meaningful and makes sense to you, then you don't get uh, like beaten down to the same extent by your trauma. You're less likely to to develop PTSD because of it. And it seems like Ritter breaks down in a way that Piranesi does not. And part of what I think Piranesi does is he finds meaning in these activities that like don't really make sense to us, like making sure he's taking care of these skeletons and, uh, you know, documenting all the different places in the house where it does give that feeling. Charles was talking about at the end where it's like, no, dude, you're, you're saved. Like 
go away. And he's like, no, I've got many things to take care of here. Like, uh, and I, I think it's like amazing. Like to me, it speaks like triumph of the human spirit that he's able to find meaning and uh, make a whole life for himself there. I think part of that can be attributed to the way Raphael or 16 handled his rescue as well, yeah. though, because Piranesi was given the choice. She did not say, I'm rescuing you, so get out of here. Not only does she make sure it's his choice to leave, she also teaches him how to get back. So it's not as abrupt of a change. Yeah. He's able to sort of spend time in both worlds instead of, you know, this this only the only thing you've basically ever known, gone forever. Welcome to modern life, right. which is sounds like what happened to James Ritter. And mm. uh, when Piranesi shows him that it's not 100% one or the other, you know, you can have both. Mm-hmm. It sounds like James yeah. Ritter really appreciated that. You know, I, I didn't think of it that way before, Lily, but I think you're 100% right on that. Like, uh, it could actually, the autonomy that Raphael instilled in in Piranesi, that, like you said, it sounds like uh, poor James Ritter was, like, dragged out of a closet and he's, like, doesn't know what's happening. Like, the removal from the house could be, like, by the end of it, a more traumatic event than even being brought there. Right. Or a traumatic event for that new person. <laughs> now, yeah. now both both versions of the people have been ripped from the only life they knew. Right. And then that you bring up um, the police officer, Raphael, which I think is another super interesting character because how she, first of all, how she handled Piranesi, I thought was very, I'm going to say the word progressive. You could definitely see a police officer from a big city coming in and being like, come with me now. It's like, no, I have the dead and stuff. It's like, oh, you're crazy. Like, let's go. <laughs> and it's like, it's like this very important piece. And that's what they say to people who are maybe like um, going through something like addiction or something. It's like, they have to want to be helped, right? So she makes it very clear and that you have to want to come with me. I'll show you how. And when you're ready, I'll be here and I'll check on you. But I'm not going to insist on anything. Like you have to be ready to come out on your own terms which I think is a really interesting um, choice. And then you have the police officer later. It's like, oh, like we all love her. She, you know, climbed this thing. And then it's like, oh, that's even more impressive when you consider that she hates heights. So it's, I think one of these themes that you get in this officer character is, is the, the bravery in facing what's unknown to you rather than what is perceived by the greater society as a big deal, right? Because for Piranesi, his whole world was taking care of these dead people and charting the labyrinth and keeping his journals. And you, tons of people could look at that and feel like that's pathetic. You're wearing rags running around in the dirt, chronicling something that doesn't even really exist, you know, it's, but it's not. And the decision to then leave on his own terms is a huge deal and being able to walk the streets of England is a huge deal and trying to create a life with this family that he doesn't even feel an attachment for originally is is, is a huge deal so these like personal triumphs I, I think is another really fascinating piece of the, like one of the fascinating themes of this story what well, I think that's really interesting because like 
not say what Lily said again, but her saying like hell is people, but it (laughs) seems like heaven and safety is humanity because the best people in this book are the ones who give humanity and dignity to the dead Mm -hmm. or to Piranesi in his time of trouble as the police officer. And they love her because she really recognizes people where they're at. And like Piranesi is an amazing figure because he's like, well, I want to help Matthew's family out of respect for Matthew and out of respect for his family. Even if I don't feel it, I want to give them that humanity. And there is something to that where it's like two sides of the same coin. I think it's so interesting. Much of this book, yeah, go ahead. Luke. Yeah, you got compassion. I think compassion comes up so much. We see Piranesi sacrifice like his winter fuel to make so that the albatross can make a nest for its egg. Uh, and then, you know, 16 being so understanding and compassionate when she's rescuing Piranesi. I th- and then it's the people who lack compassion for other people who end up being the antagonists. Mm. And those same people are the ones who lack reverence for the house, while the people who have reverence for the house are the protagonists as well. It's like, you know, you've got the other Ketterly who's just like, can't, doesn't get it. He's seeking like this ancient magic. Meanwhile, there's this magical world right in front of him. And it's then you have someone like Raphael who comes in and immediately can recognize like, oh, wow, there's like value to this place and has respect for it. I think one of my favorite moments in this book is when the other is theorizing what great magical power he's going to harness from the house and one of the options is domination of lesser minds or something to that effect (laughs) and Piranesi's contemplation of what that would even mean because at first he starts with well there's only two of us so what mind are you trying to dominate (laughs) and then neither of our minds are lesser and even if there were more people like how could you even deem any mind to be lesser than like just that very sweet approach to the very basic concept was like just very it tells you who Piranesi is very early on in the book and with that much innocence and a questioning mind he's able to unknowingly just completely undermine everything the other's trying to do it's like oh just by nature of being a good person and 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 thinking reasonably I can tell that what you're trying to do doesn't make any sense and is like, you know, bad. <laughs> it's just like, why would you ever do this? I conclude <laughs> that this is a waste of time. <laughs> I'm better off paying tribute to the skeleton than I am trying to dominate minds. It just doesn't make sense. Well, that's all the other wants to use this labyrinth to find some hidden answer. And I think Piranesi just recognizes like, oh, there is no answer. There is just here and now. <laughs> right, exactly. And then that other character that came in was like, oh yeah, it's definitely not here. Like wherever it is, it flowed through here and is somewhere else. And so, you know, it's just that kind of too compounds it. So I'm gonna pivot the conversation now as we near the end of our discussion, I want to make sure I get a chance to go around the council here and talk about kind of recommendations, like one, like what kind of reader would you recommend Piranesi to? Because on Goodreads, I see mostly glowingly positive, but every once in a while you get the contrarian point of view. So I want to make sure I get everyone's thoughts on that. 
And then as well as like, what other books would you potentially recommend for fans of Piranesi since everyone's assuming that's listening to this has read it because of spoilers. So um, uh, Dylan, I'll start with you. Oh yeah, sure. So I was thinking this book is very original and that made it, makes it hard for me to find some more books. The only one that really comes to mind is The Slow Regard of Silent Things by Patrick Rothfuss, which is, it's a novella that he wrote that's supposed to be in between the second and uh, incoming third book. And I, yeah, it, that one has less of a plot than does the, than does Piranesi. And not that Piranesi has the most direct plot, but this Slow Regard is the book that I've literally seen get the most criticism uh, of not having a plot yet. But it's got a character that's kind of roaming through uh, like a pretty magical seeming uh, labyrinth like underground labyrinth type like place so there's that and I think it's like there's kind of this like section of uh, fantasy that's like you start seeing it uh there's like a Venn diagram of that like you said Charles capital L literature style Mm -hmm. stuff with more themes and Mm -hmm. not just your epic fantasy that just you know is talking about dragons and world building just for the sake of it and I think kind of in that zone is where I'm placing Piranesi so if you're someone who dips their toe into fancy reading it's almost like I think like Kazo Ishigori Ishiguro I think I apologize for completely probably butchering that name um but it, he writes um he wrote Never Let Me Go I think like people appreciate Books like that um, would probably enjoy this one too. Well said, and I, I agree. Slow regard was on the top of my list too. You also have this: the main character is this kind of combination of innocence and wise at the same time, and you're in a setting where something clearly is important, but because of the POV you're in, you are still puzzling it out, um, and you're kind of ahead of the main character in that sense so there's a lot of that going on as well which is like a really interesting dynamic I'm kind of surprised exists in more than one book but there you have it it's a, it's an interesting connection there um so let's move on Lily what do you have for us who would you recommend this book to are there any other books you'd recommend along with it I'm frantically looking up the name of the book that I'm going to recommend but uh I feel like if you started House of Leaves and got really mad and wished it was better, you'll really like Piranesi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That being said, the author is Ashley Stokes. I think it's gigantic. One moment. No worries if you need someone to ramble on for time, you're in the right place between- I got gigantic. It's a similar sort of journalistic or journal uh, format. The main character is writing about hunting for Bigfoot. And so it's not exa- not the same tone necessarily, but a very similar sort of uh, narrative journey interacting with the main character and learning about him, not necessarily uh, from what he's writing, but how he's writing about it. That's it. All right. Hannah, Laura, 
Who is it going to be? So I thought of the Night Circus when you said what books would you recommend? Because there's so much magical realism. And in the Night Circus, there's just this circus that magically appears. No one understands how it gets where it does, how the magic systems work. And there's so much about Piranesi where you just don't understand how this magic works and why these people are here and how they got here. So you can draw some similarities there. Um, and as I said at the beginning, Jeff Vandermeer's The Southern Reach Trilogy, I recommend that for a lot of people who like this. It is similar vibes. Um, it's about someone who, like, it's a, sorry, it's about a location that's called Area X and, like, no civilization exists there anymore. And they keep sending out groups of people to discover what's there. And people keep disappearing or when they come back, they're not the same. There's, like, it, it's very much about, like, the natural world taking over very much weird, very much unreliable of like what's happening, psychological stuff going on. And so that's similar to the beginning of Piranesi. And then I was also going to say, um, Lauren, I covered up this on the podcast, but Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. It has a lot of the like darker tones of like what's going on around them, but like happiness in the characters themselves where they're like just enjoying the world and they're finding beauty in the world, much like Piranesi. So I would recommend both of those. Wow. Yeah, I, that sounds fascinating. And is the first one you mentioned, that sounds science fiction, right? It is science fiction. Right, yes. Right. It is like one of my first forays into science fiction and all three books are very weird, but I am very much a fan of <laughs> Jeff Vandermeer after that. Well, you know, Piranesi is not your typical fantasy novel either. So I think you got to get a little weird with these recommendations to keep in that in that spirit. My first recommendation would have been The Slow Regard of Silent Things, which I knew Dylan was going to say. So I prepared a second response. Um, this is a book where if you like the idea of telling a narrative through journal entries, if you like a charming, like endearing main character, if the whole like academic experiment study aspect of it as well appeals to you, but you're in the mood for a little lighter, comfortable, uh, humorous read and a foray into science fiction, The Martian by Andy Weir would be my recommendation. That's a fantastic, fantastic book, super funny. And it's, it's like the, this idea of telling through journal entries is something I would have never thought I would have liked but that was the first book in the style that I read and I was you know totally enamored by how you're able to tell plot and write suspense and all these other things while having someone journal about it after it happens and somehow still be true to the character and all of that so in that sense The Martian I would highly recommend fantastic book that's one of Laura's like favorite like novels. Favorite. <laughs> there you go. What'd you think of the movie with uh, Matt Damon? I haven't seen the movie. What one of your oh. favorite books, and you haven't seen the movie? <laughs> Sometimes I know, that that's makes it harder said. to want to see the movie. It's like, that's exactly you don't want it. it. To get ruined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll also, Charles, you made me think. Also, Fair Project Hail Mary, which is Andy Weir's newer book. You read that one, Laura? Yep, loved it. So good. And then. Uh, you also made me think, Charles, of A Natural History of Dragons by Marie Brennan, which is... Oh, and you mentioned that one before. Yeah, it's this woman who's an academic studying dragons. So she goes on these, like, field missions where she will literally, like, document uh, dragons. They're, like, not very well understood, but it's interesting to see 
something as mysterious and fantastical as dragons uh, approached with more of a um, uh, like scientific eye. And I think it's like Victorian era and it's got these like feminist elements of her being a woman in academia at a time where that's not typical. So uh, yeah, highly recommend that one too. Nice. And Lily, I'm going to make the stretch to say maybe all systems, right? If you just really love journal entry style narratives and nothing else about this book appealed to you, <laughs> then give that a read. <laughs> because uh, yeah. that's also a good one. There's, well, I always think with Murderbot Diaries uh, and that's Martha Wells, uh, I always think about the humor and I'll say Piranesi, underratedly funny. Like the moments where just through his any innocence and we get these moments where Raphael's like there's lots of people out there and he's like as many as 70 and she's like <laughs> she's like yeah there's as there's as many as 70 and he's like how do you know did you count them all and she's like no I didn't count them all but I, I'm I'm pretty sure <laughs> like, yeah. his headers like I took a picture of sections I liked and one of them is the other describes the circumstances under which it will be right to kill me <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah his journal titles and how he kind of spoils his own like journal entry <laughs> it's funny I did appreciate the titles of his entries and it's just the yeah, whole idea of like I was originally you know writing the date numerically but then I read this one that I just really liked where it's like the year the albatross came to visit you know it's like and then that in itself is funny because here's someone who through science ended up developing a non-scientific way to measure dates but a way that he, it was he enjoyed tracking it and so that kind of and that where ingenuity and naivety kind of collide is oftentimes funny. <laughs> yeah, and he craps on the our way of keeping yeah. dates where he's like, I don't know what happened like 2000 <laughs> years ago that makes any of this matter. And it's also boring, like no, it doesn't symbolize anything. It makes a lot more sense to identify it based on, you know, the year the albatross came to the Southwestern halls, so. It's oh, like, I remember that year, right. That's a good yeah. year. <laughs> and it's not like, oh, the year that my whole world was shaken. <laughs> like my whole idea of existence was changed forever. It's like, I guess that'll be next year. <laughs> yeah. This year, the albatross came to visit. <laughs> my whole sense of self was completely shaken. That's <laughs> not that year. But um well, we're, we're, we're past the hour now, and I just want to make sure that, you know, Dylan and I took some time to thank you all for coming on to this show. Um, we got Lily, fiction fans, thank you so much. Laura, Sarah from Our Pod, thank you. So many great shows no. to check out. Laura <laughs> <Hannah>. Laura <laughs> and Hannah. What did I say? You said Sarah, Sarah. but she's oh. always on our minds. She's so welcome okay. to be here in spirit. <laughs> In my mind, I said the right thing. So that's kind of this is okay. gonna get edited now. Charles very rarely does he does he actually go in and change anything. But no, I feel like that's staying in. I can't be bothered. Keep it in. <laughs> I'm all about what happens here. The honest interpretation, unedited. These are our thoughts <laughs> as they that's, appeared. That's a very nice euphemism for your a little bit lazy about <laughs> editing. <laughs> You know, Dylan, it's all through the point of view that you're in, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, Dylan, do we have any parting words before we before we wrap it up here? 
I do. But before I give my parting words, I want to give our guests a chance to plug their social media and say where people can find them um, on the vast uh, internet. So yeah, we'll start with Lily. Well, Sarah isn't here with us today, but if you want to talk to her on Twitter, our handle is <laughs> at FictionFansPod. <laughs> that's also where you can find us on Instagram, and our website is Fiction Fans Podcast. But I'm not sure why you would go to our website. <laughs> you guys got the blog, and you're doing the um, emails now. There's a lot that's of true. stuff to dive, episode See, notes, all these things. Sarah's doing too. the website now, which means there's content on it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Patreon. They can give you yeah, money. Yeah, you guys have a new Patreon. Plug we your do. Patreon. Yeah. That's mostly behind the scenes show notes. Um, it's sort of a soft launch. We don't have a ton of content up there. Um, we have a couple of excerpts and lots of silly things. So if you're feeling down and want to listen to some goofiness, then uh, <laughs> that's where to go. Um, and you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at OurPod. That's O-W-W-R-Pod. Uh, our website is also OurPod.com. So look us up. Nice. There we have it. And what about what about Laura's personal Twitter? My pod with yes, oh. my pod with three Y's. <laughs> yeah. I rarely go on Twitter. Was two Y's taken? It might have been. I'm unsure. Well, it's because our pod has three before that, so my pod just um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, the four letters. But they don't stand for anything yeah. like our pod does. No. I'm just the one who made up the Twitter handle, and I just did it as a joke. It was like you should make it my pod, and then she uh, did. Yeah, so. I mean, I Obviously, not that picky about my Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, guys. Uh, we've got fiction fans we've got our pod we have piranesi by Susanna clark so much great content here can't even express how excellent everything is and you know if you like what you heard today check out these podcasts you will not be disappointed these that these guys are doing incredible stuff hilarious insightful and you, you just don't want to miss it um, but for now though i think we've wrapped it up right dylan Yes, just my final parting words. Okay, let's hear them. Mm-hmm. The beauty of the house is immeasurable. It's kindness, infinite. Just cut it right there, right there. <laughs> None of your like go forth and conquer stuff. Just cut it right there. Uh, well, just like the house, um, your guys' kindness is infinite <laughs> no, for being on, on here. <laughs> and uh, our, our uh, gratefulness is... Um, is infinite as well so thanks for listening everybody yeah, i kind of don't want to say my usual outro now doing kind of undermine the whole thing but uh you know what yeah. it's a special episode today we're going to do special things so um thanks for listening everybody and uh see you later <laughs> thank you so much for inviting us on thank you for having us on <laughs> oh, the pleasure is all ours guys <laughs> get the salute again <laughs> yeah the salute over uh, over uh, um, yeah, I'm gonna kill it now. I'm just gonna end this. You know, we, we we've done it. We're good. They're gonna hear me telling you to kill it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, no. I'm, well, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not editing any of this. I'm telling you, this is how it's meant to be. It's the purest form. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and that's why it's staying in. No other reason. So, uh, shouldn't be explained <laughs> now. And I'm gonna, I just gotta end it, guys. But thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, fiction fans. Our podcast. You can also follow my personal account. No, no, ending. Bye, bye. That part I'll get. <laughs>